Last week we opened up First um, John 4 and did 1 to 6, and this week we're going to close John 4 by going through 7 through 21. And since we have a lot to cover, I'm going to jump right in, and we're going to start going through 1 John 4, verse by verse by verse. And so let's jump right in. John continuing, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, this verse 7 here is so important that I want to camp here for, for some time, okay? And let me warn you on the front end, don't be afraid if we're spending a ton of time in the beginning portion, which is this 7 to 12, and we're going to go through the last portion much faster, all right? So we're going to spend most of our time in this chunk, and then in the last two chunks, broken up into three parts, we'll, we'll go through much faster, okay? So I think 4-7 is so important that it deserves our attention and to be broken apart, okay? Not that all of 1 John doesn't deserve that, but let's emphasize this verse 7 here. Love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, for most of you, you know this, but if we were to say, what is the two great commandments? When you take all 610 or so, 13 or so commandments, and you, and you smash them into two, you boil them down, and there's two left, what are they? There it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I think you know this too, but when someone is born again, which we'll dig up in a minute, one of the first things that happens to them is they are filled with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he begins to produce in them what they cannot produce on their own. And the first of that produce fruit is what? Is love. And so here, John is admonishing us believers, let's love one another. Why? Because love is from God. Now, that's quite literally. We cannot obey the two greatest commands without God. Meaning, you on your own, minus the Holy Spirit, you can't do the first part of verse 7. Impossible. And even with the Holy Spirit, we do it imperfectly, don't we? We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we definitely don't love our neighbor as ourself. Just think of your spouse if you're married. Do you love them as much as you love you? And the answer is no, you don't. But they're the closest neighbor to you if you're married. Then your children are second closest neighbors. And I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. I, I am also in this boat of struggling to love God and neighbor with all of my being. But let me just emphasize, without God, it is utterly impossible. And so that's why the second part of verse 7 is so important. Whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And so part B of verse 7 is saying this. If there is love for God, whoever loves God, this is a reality for them. They're born again. Now, what does that mean? A refresher for some, but for some, keep in mind, this is brand new, okay? Same writer of 1 John is the Gospel of John. And so at least when I've preached, we've gone back to John over and over because the same language and the same type of thinking is wrapped up in the same author. And often the same themes are being repeated. Now, in this story, Jesus is at night having a conversation with one of the Pharisees, and not just one of the Pharisees, but uh, the teacher of Israel, he's called later in this conversation. Jesus says to him, wait, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So Nicodemus, we could call him Nick, Nick was not just a teacher of the law, he was the teacher of teachers. He was the man. And Jesus, in a sense, to humble him is like, wait a minute, you're the teacher and you don't understand what I'm saying to you? And Jesus was, I think, intentionally bringing him down and bringing him out of his high 
place of being looked up to and praised so much. And Jesus is like, wait, I'm talking about plain stuff and you don't get it? Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice in verse seven, whoever loves has been born of God and that results in knowing God. And here Jesus is like, look, you can't even see the kingdom unless this happens to you, you're born again. And so it's been said before, but it's worth repeating. When you say, I'm a born again Christian, that's kind of redundant because if you're born again, you are a Christian. And if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. There is no such thing as a non-born again Christian. It's Christian in name only, but it's the reality or the substance isn't there. And Jesus is saying, look, unless you're born again, you, you can't even see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Most likely he's going with the metaphor and he's giving back a metaphor. Okay? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And we don't have time to unpack the rest of John 3, but interestingly, uh, Nicodemus is just baffled by what he's saying here, and, and he's like, how can these things be? How, how can this be? And that's when Jesus says, wait, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? And I think what Jesus is most clearly pointing to is what we see in verse 5, okay? We, as non-Old Testament scholars, even non-Old Testament readers, some of us, we're like, hey, Jesus isn't even in the Old Testament. Why should I read it? Okay? Well, number one, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, so that's a wrong you know, premise. But also, you're not seeing the purpose of the Old Testament if you think all we need is the new. Okay, but uh, Nicodemus is a scholar of the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. And so he's like, look, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus should have realized he was referring to an Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant because both water and spirit are mentioned. Okay, and he's referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 and on. And in that, God promises for the new covenant people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, born of water. I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit inside of you and I will put my spirit inside of you. And I will cause you, cause you to walk in my ways. And so the, the cleansing is the water. You must be cleansed, Nicodemus. And you need new spiritual life that you do not possess. How does that come? That comes by me putting a new spirit in you and then putting my spirit inside of you. And friends, that's what it is to be born again. We all come into the world, every child is born, including you and me, with a hard heart towards God and a spiritually dead state, in a spiritually dead state. And though children are cute and they look innocent, they are not right with God by birth. They inherit the sin nature just like you did, which is why they're so rebellious, right? And if all parents are honest, there's times we want to take our kids as light as they are and just boom, toss them from us, right? I see two hands in the back, like yes and amen, right? Like, because you know they're sinners, Right? And, and often your sin is reflected in them like a mirror, and you're like, mm, I see myself in you, and I don't like it. Right? And, and, and they need to be born again, just like we need to be born again. And so what happens? Our hard, resistant heart towards God, and by the way, heart in the Old Testament and in the New is the core of your being. It's the center of your humanity. It is the seat of the mind, the emotions, and the will, and it is bent against God until that heart of resistance, stone, is taken out and God gives you a new, soft, pliable, alive, beating heart for him and for others. 
But wait, that's not all. He says, I will put a new spirit inside of you. Okay, That is our spirit is now alive in some new sense. So the core of your being is new, and you have a new spiritual reality inside of you. That's why Corinthians 5.17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, new creature. That's what it means. The old has gone, the new has come. There's a new spirit inside of you, new spiritual life, and it's, it's connected to your spirit. Your spirit is now alive to God. We are not just material beings. We are both body and soul, or body and spirit, and new spiritual life is put into you by God himself. If you want an image, you remember when Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, God made this, this clay statue, lifeless, laying there, and Genesis, Moses tells us, and God breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit breathes into you, and that deadness in you comes alive, and now you are alive to God. But wait, that's not all. He puts his own spirit inside of you, such that Paul says in the, to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies." So you get a new heart that's alive to God, you get a new spirit that is your spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity connected to you. And so now I know you're asking the question, well then why do I still sin so much? That's because fourthly, you still have the flesh. That unredeemed, resistant to God, hating God part of you, it's still there. But friends, without being born again, that's all you have. You're nothing but flesh. And the flesh, as Romans 8 says, cannot please God. It will not, and it cannot. And it still lives in us. But friends, the good news is this. One day, the flesh will die forever. And friends, our eternity is going to be fleshless not bodiless, we're coming back with a new body, physical, on a physical earth, in my view, with physical oceans and physical animals and physical fruits and all that, but no flesh, no inner part of us that resists God and his law and his will. That's gone. And so no more temptation because there's nothing in us to tempt. Isn't that good news? But for now, we live in this dual state such that Paul in Galatians 5 can say, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh, keeping you from doing the things you want to do. But notice he says, there is something in you that wants the right, but the flesh keeps you from doing that which is right. And that one day will be removed from us. That's our hope. And so for now, we fight the flesh, right? That's in part what the Christian life is. It's, it's Romans 8, 13. By the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body or the flesh. Okay, so he says to, to Nicodemus, Jesus says, you got to be born of the water in the Spirit, pointing to Ezekiel 36. And he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, a mere physical birth produces flesh. But there's a second birth that needs to happen. It's being born of the Spirit. And notice, I love what the ESV did here. See the capital S at the end of six? That's right. That which is born of the Holy Spirit is small s, new spirit for you. That's correct, theologically. And so Nicodemus is being given this new paradigm, which he apparently missed in Ezekiel 36. You need to be cleansed of your sin and you need a new heart, and you need a new spirit, and you need my spirit, Nicodemus. And if you don't have that, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And so John here in 1 John is, is saying that. Look, whoever loves has been born of God. All that, new heart, new spirit, my spirit, born of God. Sins cleansed and washed. In Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, this is another old covenant 
prediction or prophecy about the new covenant. We could find them in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Deuteronomy. There's a, there's a lot of places in the old covenant that point to and prophesy the new covenant. Jeremiah, speaking about this new covenant, says this, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Okay, so, so no longer is it external. We read this, do not or do. Rather, it's internal. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. New heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Notice that everyone in this new covenant knows God. That's different than the old covenant. Okay? Everyone who's in this new covenant has a real relationship with God. They are born again. They have his spirit within them. And as we'll see later in John 17, to know God is eternal life. And so they have eternal life. No one's going to have to say, hey, know the Lord, because everyone in this new covenant already knows the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. There's that cleansing. And so, so born again, knowing God, having his law on the heart. How many of you lived a life where you didn't feel bad about anything you did and all of a sudden you become a Christian and you feel bad about everything you do? That is having the law written on your heart. That's having the Holy Spirit informing your conscience. That's a good thing. And the Holy Spirit gives the gift of repentance. And as we repent more, we draw closer to God. Here's one more and then we're done. With, with the born again. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, we must be born again or we can't even love God, which I appreciate. And the Lord your God, this is again a, a prophecy about the new covenant, okay? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that it will result in this, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and will live now, Paul picks up on this in Colossians 2, okay? So, so circumcision was the old covenant sign that you were in the covenant. Okay? It was promised to Abraham and every male after that on the eighth day had to be circumcised, and that was the sign that you were in this old covenant. And one of the distinguishing marks of the old covenant compared to the new is everyone in the old covenant didn't know God. You could be circumcised and have the outward sign of being in the covenant, but inwardly you didn't know God. And so the, the language is strange, but you didn't have circumcision of the heart. And that's what's, what Paul picks up on here. He, and the hymn is Jesus. In him or in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. See, so we're not talking about body and physical as a sign of the covenant. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he's going to explain what that is. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, spiritual union with Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, which baptism pictures under the water, dead, with Jesus up out of the water, out of the grave, alive with Christ, united to him. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. There's that born again. Made alive is, is synonymous with born again. It's Ephesians 2. You were spiritually dead, but God made you alive. Born again. God made Alive together with him, united to Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay? And so this is, friends, this is not optional. And so he, here's what I've learned, okay? Many of us have had these spiritual realities happen to us, and we didn't quite understand what was happening to us, and we didn't know how to articulate it, but then later we learn what happened to us. It's like, wait a minute, my heart of stone was taken out and I was given a new heart and a new spirit and the Holy Spirit and I'm born again and cleansed and all this. I didn't even know. I just asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And it's like, yes and amen, you were forgiven and all that happened to you without you even knowing it. And now you know. And so the process of growth is in some sense realizing what has happened to you and who you really are in Christ. 
Let me say that a different way. All this could be true of you without you even knowing the categories. And often that's the case. You learn the categories later as you grow. But now you know. And so here in 1 John, verse 7, you just learned what is all behind that, what is jammed into that, that been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this is kind of a, a logical inference, okay? The idea is if God is in essence love, which it says he is, okay, anyone who does not, does not love does not know God because God is love, okay, part of God's essential nature or his, his, one of his characteristics that's overarching is he is love. Not loving, but is love. He's the definition itself. And so if God lives inside of you and the first fruit of him living inside of you by the Holy Spirit is love, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, right? You know. And so if it's love and yet you're not loving, what does that imply? You don't have God inside of you. And if you don't have God inside of you and you're not born again, you don't know God as much as you think you know him or say you know him. That's what it, that's what it means. Look, anyone who does not love does not know God. And so you can check, you, you know, James 2 says that we say we have faith, but James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll prove to you what I say by living it out. And John is saying the same thing here. He's like, look, if there's no love for God and others, then you really don't know God. Now, let me confess to you. Are there people in your life who are hard to love? Come on, put your hand up. You're not all saints. There's no Augustines in here. <laughs> right, two hands. That's exactly it. Many people in our lives are hard to love. And so how are we going to do it? Friends, not on your own. Oh, my goodness. There are some people that you absolutely have to continually plead God for love for them because you have no resources to love them, right? And so what do you do? You call upon God for that love that you do not have. And with that love given to you as a gift, you love them. More on that in a minute. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. So now he's going to point to how God's love is shown, really, manifest, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So that means that God demonstrated or proved his love by sending his only son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. But remember, God didn't just send the Father, God didn't just send Jesus as an example, right? Jesus is not exemplar in that we should follow his example. Jesus was sent on a fulfillment mission. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. For who? For us. Not for himself. We needed a positive righteousness to stand before God, and we had negative righteousness. So what did Jesus do? He accomplished positive righteousness for us. Many of you have heard and said, we are not saved by works, and that's only partly true. We are saved by works just not ours. We're saved by the perfect works of Jesus Christ, given to us as a gift. It's not our works. We have none. All our works are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. But Jesus' perfect righteousness is gifted to each one of us, and God treats me and you, if you're in Christ, as if you lived the perfect life of Jesus. We all have positive righteousness to stand before God. But also in the negative, God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. We also needed our sin debt taken care of, and Jesus accomplished that as well. Both in the negative and in the positive, God loved, and so he sent his son to accomplish both of those impossible feats. 
both removing our sin as far as the east is from the rest, west by paying for it on the cross, and then positively living perfectly according to God's law and then gifted to us. And so it's as if we live the perfect life of Christ, and it's as if we've never sinned like Jesus never sinned. That's ours in Jesus. Isn't that good news? And so that's how God showed his love for us. He demonstrated, or as the text says, it was manifest in this way, that God sent his only son into the world so that something would happen, that we would live through him. What I just explained. It's as if we live the perfect life of Jesus. It's as if we're sinless. We live through the life of Christ. And without Christ, friends, we have nothing. We have our own righteousness, which is none, and we have our sins still on us. So what's the option? You live through Christ, or you're in big trouble. And God loved us enough, the Father loved us enough so much that he would send his only son so that we could be reconnected with him, reconciled, as we live through Christ. And here's the good news. There's no one who is so far gone that they can't live through Christ. They could have committed absolutely horrible, horrible jail-for-life sins, and they can live through Christ and be right with God. That's good news. Let's move on. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I want to camp here for another minute, and and don't be afraid. Like I said, we're going to run through the last two chunks quickly, okay? This is saying a lot more than you realize it's saying, just like the born-again reference earlier, okay? When, When we read that this is love, look, in this is love. So, so he's defining it. What is it for us? It's not that we have loved God, but rather that he loved us. And what did that result in? Sent his son for the propitiation for our sins. Now, what this implies is that God chooses us, and as a result, we then choose him not the other way around. Notice what it says. Not that we loved God, and then he responded to us with his love. No, it's that you were loved on by God, and you responded to God's love by loving him and belief and faith. Now, this is all over the Bible, and we could do a whole sermon series, but I'm just going to show you a few verses, all right? Just a few. John 17, this is the high priestly, notice again, we're going to John a lot because it's the same author, we're not ripping John out of context, same themes, same concepts, same words often used in Greek. John 17 is the high priestly prayer before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in between uh, the Last Supper and the Garden, John 17. It's, It's the last prayer of Jesus before he begins to plead, let this cup pass. And in this prayer, he says to his father, since you have given him authority over all flesh, that means all people, all animals, all flesh. Jesus has authority over all flesh, but specifically people. What will that do? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So notice what's being said here. In the prayer, Jesus is saying, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh, and specifically to give eternal life to all whom you have given me as a gift. Implying that the Father gives people to Jesus as a gift. And the picture in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, the letters, is it's a bride gift. Remember Ephesians 5? This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Meanwhile, he's talking about marriage. And so the Father is giving Jesus a bride, but it's not you, you're not the bride of Christ, and I'm not the bride of Christ, but we collectively as a people are the bride of Christ, and the Father is giving his Son a bride. And so here he says, I have authority over all flesh, and what that's going to result in is I'm going to give eternal life, not to everybody, but to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, Remember, he's praying to God. The only true God 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so eternal life is to know God. And remember earlier, if you claim to know God but don't love, you don't really know him. And to know him is to have eternal life. And so all this is wrapped up together. Look at verse six. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Certain people whom the Father gave Jesus out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse nine, I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world. That's pretty clear. I am not praying for the world. I am only praying for those whom you've given me out of the world. Why? Those whom you have given me, they are yours. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, here's another one. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Even as he, God the Father, chose us, Christians, in him, Jesus, the him is Jesus, before the foundation of the world. What will that result in? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at this. In love. In love. He predestined us for something. Predetermined destiny. For what? For adoption. To himself, the Father, to himself, as sons, through, there's that through again, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. So notice his will was being exercised before the foundation of the world. And so, so what, you know, we could, we could go on and on here, but what's happening here is God the Father is choosing out of fallen humanity a people to save and give to his son as a bride. And we are in that, we are in that chosen people. Here's one more. Actually, I, I, I left that one out. Um, so we'll, we'll do verse 10 again, ready? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the reason I said atoning sacrifice is because propitiation means atoning sacrifice. It literally, the NIV translates it that way. It's a sacrifice of atonement. It means to, to take sin away by sacrifice. It means sin offering. Okay, and so how did God love us before we loved him? By atoning for our sin. You see it? That's how God loved us, by taking away our sin. And as we just learned from a few other passages, this was in the plan before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us that we should be adopted as sons. Let's look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, verse 11 is this. You ready? Friends, we were the unlovable. So, so if we were to go to Romans 9, which we will not do. Yeah. <laughs> we already did, so I'm not afraid to. Go on the eternalcity.org. We went through Romans. We spent a bunch of time in Romans 9. Okay? It's not a fear thing. It's a time thing. Romans 9 says this. Okay? Before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God said, the older will serve the younger. And so, and, and Paul goes on to argue, it's not about works, it's not about doing good or bad, but it's about him who calls and him who elects. In other words, it's God's will. So what does that mean practically for you and me? That means that you weren't so lovable in God's future vision of you. He was like, I just have to have this one like, like you see an adorable puppy on Puppy Finder, and you're like, oh, the cuteness is overwhelming. And, and like you click the button, and you just imagine putting your face in all that fluffy fur, right? God wasn't like, oh, they're so lovable and fluffy. I just got to have Eddie. Eddie you, make your, Eddie, you make your way into every sermon somehow. He's, he, he did say that, right? No, no, it's, it's, listen, listen, it's not that we were so lovable it's that God decided to love us. And in so doing, wait, he makes us lovable. No, we were sinners, I'm gonna be blunt, with our middle fingers in the air to God. And he was like, you're not cute or cuddly and you're super rebellious and you deserve hell, but I'm gonna choose you for salvation. 
And so as C.S. Lewis said, when he was born again and saved, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. That's us. Reluctant until God says, reluctant no more. And then we want him. We resist until he says, the resistance is over. You are no longer the resistance. And all of a sudden we come to him seemingly of our own free will. And it is because he made us willing when we were unwilling. And if God doesn't make us willing, we stiff arm him into eternity. That's what sin does. Sin says, no, I will not have you. I will have my sin. John 3, 19, men love darkness instead of light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever does come into the light, John 3, 20, comes in to show that what has been done has been done by God or through God. It's all about God. He causes us to be born again. He makes us willing. He puts his spirit inside of us. He gives us a new heart. It's all God, isn't it? If we're going to love, whose love is it? It's God's love. Friends, this is a supernatural religion. This is not one where you muster up all of your inner righteousness and accomplish. No, you can't do it, any of it, even coming to God on your own. All of it's supernatural from eternity beginning to eternity future. All of it's supernatural. And friends, what does that do for us? You get to sleep at night. You you get to rest secure in the arms of the all-powerful sovereign God. Why? Because you're in Christ. And you can't be out of Christ once you're in. And so, what is it, again, what does it mean, verse 11? If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Just as we were not lovable and God loved us in our sin, friends, what are we supposed to do? What does it say? We need to love the unlovable. We need to love the impossible to love. Why? Because we were them and God loved us. That's the implication here. Now, I realize what I'm saying. There are many, many unlovable people in your life, as there are many unlovable people in our life. But the standard here in verse 11 is, brethren, beloved, love those who love you, and feel free to kick those and spit on those who don't love you. For an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the way of Christianity. No, it it says... You love the unlovable because you were the unlovable and God loved you. And so go and do likewise. But listen, not by your own strength, by the power that I supply. And friends, doesn't it say something when we love people who are unlovable? Doesn't that say something about the God we worship? It does. He is powerful, able to do the impossible. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so God the Father and the Holy Spirit are invisible. We we don't see them. We see manifestations of them like like the cloud on on Mount Sinai and the thunder and, and Elijah has the earthquake and the and the fire and the lightning, but God cannot be seen. He is invisible. But Jesus became visible, didn't he? He became the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And he revealed the Father to us. He said to his disciple, Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, though the Father is invisible. And now what John is telling us is even though no one's ever seen God the Father because he's invisible, when we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, meaning God can be seen in the way that we love one another. That's what he's saying. This is exactly what Aunt Diane read and you read earlier. A new commandment, this is the Last Supper, Jesus teaching his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
just as I have loved you. He just washed their feet. Remember that story? You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so God, the people who are not yet gods, who do not belong to him, will know that we belong to God and we are his disciples. How? By our slamming on point theology. Because our library is full of big books. Because of our podcast library that's super thick. No, by the love we have for one another. Isn't that totally consistent with what 1 John 4 says? Okay? And so let's move on. Here's the next set, and we're going to burn through this. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay? So, so the abiding in God, now, now let me, let's do this. Rather than, for sake of time, let's just do this as one chunk, 13 through 17, rather than go verse by verse. Ready? By this, we know that we abide, keep that in mind, that word abide in him and he in us. Because, how do we know it? Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides, there's that word again, in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is also, he is so also we are in this world. We'll get to 17. It's a bit confusing. So what, what we have here is the spirit is inside of us, and the spirit enables us to abide in Christ and the Father, and as we abide in Christ and the Father, God is perfecting us, and he's perfecting the love that we have for God and for others. Now, interestingly, this word, well, before we go to abide, look at 13 and 14. The Trinity is clearly here, okay? There there are people who deny the Trinity, by the way. Like, you'll meet them out there. I was in a bookstore one time, Half Price Books. This is before I was a Logos guy and a Kindle guy, I would go to Half Price Books and look through for hours. Ask my wife, she remembers. Like, the Half Price Book bill was half my salary. Yeah? And, and I remember, like, sitting in there, and some guy, all of a sudden, he wants to argue about the Trinity. Like, there is no such thing as a Trinity. What? Right? And so we're, we're in Half Price Books having a theological debate about the Trinity, and he was going through bunch of scriptures trying to convince me that the Trinity is not really in the Bible. And I wasn't grown enough, mature enough to, to just go to John, 1 John 4, 13 and 17, because it's right here. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. There's the spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son right there. So, so the whole Trinity is wrapped up in this love that God gives us and enables us to stay in, which then enables us to love one another. All right, the word abide is heavy and thick in these few verses, okay? Here's what the word means. It means to remain, to stay, to continue, to reside. To remain, stay, continue, reside. And interestingly, This word appears 67 out of 118 times in the New Testament in John. More than half of the word, this word, meno, in the New Testament is used by John. He loves the word abide. And it is used in other senses, but abide is the way that he's using it here. And it means remain, stay, continue, reside. Now, do I have time? I don't really have time. So I want you later, okay, to go to John 15, and I want you to read this, okay? And here's the gist of it. Jesus is the vine, and we are a branch that comes off of the vine. And if we do not stay connected to Jesus the vine, we wither and we die, and we cannot produce fruit. And so again, same author same word, he uses abide a 
ton of times in here. In fact, he uses it in 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, and 16. Right here. Abide, 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 abide. And so what does it mean again? Remain, stay, continue, reside. How do we do it? How do we do it? We do it, friends, by... This sounds so simple now. Ready? We remain in the normal means of grace. Do not cut yourself off from the normal means of grace. Not saving grace, but sustaining and sanctifying grace. If you don't like the word sanctifying grace, grace that grows you. Okay? And what are they? Friends, it's so basic. Stay reading the scriptures. Stay praying. Stay fellowshipping with other believers. Do not neglect the worship on Sundays with your church, whether this church or your church. Do not neglect, as some do, as the the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together, but encourage one another daily as you see Judgment Day approaching. Being willing to lovingly, lovingly talk to others about their sin. Friends, did you know that the body of Christ is somewhat like a mirror? That when we look into other people's lives and they look into our lives, they can see sin that we can't see? Right? And this, this is just evidenced by your coworkers, right? There's this coworker, they leave the circle, and all of a sudden everybody's talking crap on them. Why? Because they see all the sin, and let's talk about what we see. Friends, you're that person. I'm that person. When we leave the room, everyone sees it but you. And wouldn't it be beautiful if someone could tell us, like put a mirror up, and we're not like, I'm going to punch you in the face. You better shut up. I do know how to choke people out. You want choked out? Right? But we're, we're so defensive. We're like, I hope you know a good chiropractor because I'm about to suplex you, right? And instead of like receiving the grace of a mirror that shows our sins so that we can repent and be better, more like Christ, instead we're like, yo, I know how to leg sweep and you're about to kiss the floor. Say it again. Call me sinner one more time, right? (laughs) Like, that's what we do. Right? And, 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 and so the, the gift would be if we could humbly listen and receive. Friends, how many of us, when confronted with sin, immediately defense and opposition with violence sometimes? If not physically, at least with words. Right? You, you, the veins start popping on the side of your head. Would you say? Right? And, and the idea is, man, if we could have the Holy Spirit give us the gift of humility and we could hear someone else lovingly call us out, that would be a gift. And I know we don't see it as a gift, but it is a gift. And that we're actually called to that. Love one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right, so those are the normal means of grace. Okay? Staying in fellowship, not neglecting to read the word, praying, uh, being humble enough to ask. There, there are brothers in this church. I'm so thankful for the foundry. There are brothers in this church who say, if you see something in me, call it out. I want to know. I, I want you to ask me the hard questions. That's a brother who's ready to grow. Those who say, don't, don't, don't even ask. Friends, that's a dangerous position to be in. If you're like, don't even ask me about sin. That's a dangerous position to be in. All right, let's, let's move on. So abiding in God here. Let's go through one more time. We abide in him and he in us. So we're, we're connected to God and God's connected to us. By the Spirit, verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I do have like 10 texts to show uh, that, that the world there means actually all ethnicities and not every single person in the world because we're not universalists. We don't believe every single person is saved, do we? No. And so it can't mean what it looks like it means on the surface, Savior of the world. The world is not all saved. What does it mean? It means All people, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just Italians, or Nigerians, or 
Alaskans. <laughs> Is there any Alaskans in here? Did I make that up? Any Moabites in the house? No? <laughs> whoever confesses, listen, whoever confesses, Eddie, settle down. Whoever, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, look, God abides in him. Now, you remember earlier, whoever, whoever does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. But now, here, the, 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 the confession is Jesus is the Son of God. He is God become man, okay? That's the confession. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, it's clear that God lives inside that person, abides. And he in God. God lives in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is again. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Do you see how it's repeating? We in God and God in us. What will it produce? Love. Love for God and love for others. Verse 17. By this is love perfected within us. By what? Well, what he just said. Love that God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, abiding in love and God abiding in him, love is perfected within us. So here's what he's saying. By God dwelling in us, and we, as consciously as we can, abide in God, love becomes perfected in us. Notice the perfected. It's not perfect, but it is perfecting. We are a becoming people. We become more loving as we grow. So that, what will that produce? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. As we become more loving towards God and towards others, we have confidence that on judgment day, we're going to be safe. That's what it means. We have confidence for the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is love, so also we are in this world. Okay, so as God is love, so are we in the world, agents of his love. Isn't that beautiful? Love does no harm to a neighbor. In fact, it's not just negative. Love does good to a neighbor. And then let's finish. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, you remember, in the original letter, no verse headings and no verses, okay? no chapter divisions. And so, remember, judgment was in the, in the verse before. Thinking about judgment makes me afraid. And in some sense, that's right. Like, we should be, in some sense, healthily afraid of God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. But the fear here is fear of punishment, and what that means is if we fear judgment day because we're afraid we're going to be on the wrong side of judgment and hell is going to be our eternity, that means that love has not yet been perfected in us. Which means if you're that person, you have work to do on having love perfected in you. How? Remember the previous chunk, abiding in God and God's love abiding in you. And as you manifest that love in the world by loving other people and loving God more, the fear decreases. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Judgment day, punishment, hell. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, and so what's the answer to my fear of God in the hell and judgment sense? You need to love God more. And love your neighbor more. And how are you going to do that? Pray that God gives you the love. Because you don't have it on your own. Verse 19. We love, here it is again, because he first loved us. Didn't you just say that? And John's like, yeah, well, I wanted you to get it, so I repeated it. <laughs> it's not about you loving God. It's about God loving you and you responding with God's love back to him. It's not that we love God, but he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother.
Now, it's interesting that he just talked about perfect love casting out fear, and then he ends the section with this. And he's like, look, if you say you love God, but you have hate in your heart for another human being, the reality is you really don't love God. So let's, let's take 30 seconds and check our hearts. Who do you hate? The other political aisle? Those Arminians? <laughs> Those Calvinists? Those Reformed Presbyterians? That other ethnicity? Seriously. My ex-relationship, my kid. <laughs> if there's hatred in your heart, friends, you need to deal with that immediately. Because love for God and hatred for another human being are not compatible. That's what, that's what John's saying here. And so if there is in your heart hate for someone else, that, is, that should be a serious red flag to you. And you need to do some work there. Because as you abide in God and God abides in you, what is produced is love. Now, we're not talking about loving abusers in such a way where you put yourself back under abuse. That's not loving. And so, so we have to nuance this, and I don't have time to do that. But it means hatred for another human being. You can't be abiding in God and have that in your heart. You say, Chris, how, how could you say that? I, I'm not. John is saying it. He's saying, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, and, and, and I want to end on that, but I want to end on this in addition. <laughs> God so loved us, friends, when we were at our worst. Not when we were at our best. This is good news for everyone because often the, the mindset is like, I'll get right with God when I clean up a bit. And that's not how it works. You cannot clean up enough to come to God. You come to him filthy, and amazingly, he just, he loves on you because he is love and his love is saving love. And so in Romans 5, 8, uh, I don't have it there, but I have it here. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he didn't wait for us to repent enough while we were still sinners, then he came in and he loved us. Friends, what does that mean for the way we love other people? Should we do the same? While they are still sinners, should we go and show love to them? I think so. It's a right response to what God has done for us. As God has loved us in our sin when we were at our worst, friends, we, with God's help, not on our own, but energized by him, we do the same. And friends, isn't it amazing that as we realize the love God has for us and we experience it, it changes and transforms us, and the same can happen to our fellow human beings. When they experience God's love through us, we can see them change and transform. We are, we are God's agents of reconciliation in the world he is pleading with the world, the lost world, be reconciled through us. And amazingly, it's as we love one another and as we love the world that God is seen clearly. Do you see how all this works? And so here's my encouragement and here's my prayer. Let us abide in God in such a way where his love fills us in such a way where it can't help but spill out. I love root beer. Do you ever put too much root beer in a cup and it just, just froths over the side? That's the way the love should be. 
Like if I was using a party illustration from back in the day, immature party joke, right? People are drinking beer in a bottle and you go up and you clink the top of the bottle. You ever do that? And then it starts to froth out and they have to hurry up and not waste their beer. No one knows what I'm talking about. I'm the only sinner. You're like, unrighteous heathen. There was a few people in the back who were like, no one did this as people were doing earlier, right? God loves, God's love fills us to such a degree that it it spills over onto other people. That's, That's possible. And the more that we realize the love God has for us, we are filled with it to such a degree that it can spill out onto other people. And so I'm going to pray that for us as the brothers collect the communion elements. And uh, we're going to take communion together and sing a song and ask that God would fill us with his love. So let's pray. Father, would you be so merciful and gracious to fill us with the Holy Spirit? Father, you've told us in your word in multiple places that to be born again is to have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit produces love, the first fruit. God, you've told us that we are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, we can't do this on our own. We need your help. And so would you please give us the gift of filling us with such love that it spills onto others. God, would we experience your love if we've never experienced it before? the real, authentic love of God for his children. God, would we know it? Not just know about it, but know it. Father, help us as we live this Christian life. It is impossible, but God, with you, all things are possible. And so help us, we pray. As we sing, as we take communion, may we have even a sense of your love for us, I pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said